0: This episode of the Post-Christianity Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. In this book, Glenn Scrivener writes about the Christian values that underpin our Western society, whether we realize it or not. This is a book for both believers and skeptics, giving Christians confidence to be open about their faith and showing non-Christians the ways in which the message of Jesus makes sense of their most cherished beliefs. And there's even a free small group kit available at The Good Book Company. Visit thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast to find this book and more resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way. And use code POST at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash
1: postpodcast.
2: I think the problem in the United States is that Protestant evangelicals thought they owned the country, and it's becoming patently obvious they don't own it anymore if they ever did. and. The temptation then is to think something's being stolen from you, uh, that you're powerless in the face of this act of theft and to despair. I think preaching, the preaching of hope, the preaching of the return of Christ, the preaching of the lamb will triumph, I think these things have to feature.
1: Hello and welcome to Post-Christianity. My name is Glenn Scrivener. And I'm Andrew Wilson. Uh, We're trying to think about our cultural moment in historical perspective. How do we get where we are and what should we do about it? And we're very thrilled to have our guest on the podcast today, Carl Truman. He's the author of many books, including The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and Strange New World. And he joins us on the line now. Hello, Carl.
2: Hello. It's great to be with you guys. So one of the things you say
1: towards the end of your book, I think, is, and it's a, it's a while since I
0: read it, but it, I, I remember it making an impression on me, but words to the effect of, my, a lot of my goal in writing is to help explain the world to the church. So I'm, I'm trying to help the church understand where they are. Could you, as much as I know you'll have had to do this many times, could you summarise that narrative in three or four minutes like so, when you, you're saying there is basically something about modern selfhood and identity which feeds through into concepts of who I truly am and also to our sexual politics which is the result of a series of ideological changes that began in the 18th, late 18th century and have been refracted through particularly some key late 19th and early 20th century thinkers but could you just give us a, a quick summary of that account just so for people who haven't sure.
2: I mean, I think at the centre of, of the thesis I'm trying to make is the idea that certainly in the way we experience reality, what has occurred over the last four or five hundred years is that our inner feelings have been granted increasing authority in understanding who and what we are now again it's it's a little more complicated than that of course because the outer world shapes our inner feelings uh, in significant ways but subjectively i think what we've experienced over the last four or five hundred years is the idea that who i am is increasingly determined by who i feel myself to be what i feel myself to be Uh, and that uh, tracks with well, you could trace an intellectual genealogy as I, I start with Rousseau. One could say that in Rousseau, you get this uh, move towards seeing culture as that which, which corrupts, culture as that which prevents me being myself. And therefore, the real goal uh, is, to, is to go back, to reflect on my inner life prior to uh, culture getting hold of me and messing me up in order to find out who I am. Uh, So we get this authorization of the inner space, I think, in the 18th century in a way that we had not seen before. It's not that the inner space never existed. Clearly, the psalmist explores uh, uh, inner emotions. You can read Homer and, and read about Achilles sulking. Clearly, Homer has a concept of the inner space. But with the 18th century, the inner space takes on more importance in terms of Who we are. And it's not just uh, a non Christian thing either. I'm struck by the fact that as Rousseau is uh, writing his material exploring the inner space, you have, for example, Jonathan Edwards uh, writing The Religious Affections. Uh, The 18th century seems to me to be a, a tipping point in terms of that exploration of the inner space because emotions are becoming more authoritative. And then as we move closer to the present day, the big question becomes, you know, why is sex so important? Why does sexual desire suddenly take on an importance in terms of identity that it's not had before? Again, sex is not invented uh, in the 20th century. How dare you? Uh, you, <laughs> you, you, read, <laughs> you read Homer and Homer makes sense because we all know uh, we, we all know that you know one guy can fall in love with another guy 's wife, run off with her, and the, the the husband is mad and he chases after him. That sort of erotic dynamic is not something that is new in Western culture uh, at all, but what we see in the 20th century is this idea that actually my sexual desires are some of the most foundational things for understanding who I am, so we get the emergence of the language of of lgb or or even of straight, where you know you think you describe yourself as straight what are you doing you're you're grounding your identity in, in the nature of your sexual desire that's an interesting and relatively modern thing to do so you have this authorizing of the inner space i think in the 18th century and then by the time we get to the present day that inner space has been colonized really by Above all, sexual desires, and that helps to explain, I think, both much of the politics we now struggle with in the West, but also to bring this into a more Christian perspective, many of the pastoral issues that uh, pastors and elders are having to deal with in their local church because they have a generation of people rising who've been trained by the culture to think of their identity in terms of, of, of sexual desire. So this move, this authorizing and sexualizing of the inner space, I think uh, transforms everything, both public life and, and pastoral life.
1: I guess your first real historical figure that you're analyzing is Rousseau, uh, which uh, thrills Andrew's heart, uh, who has been in the 18th century for the last uh, few years working, working on his book. Um but if we're going to trace back the origins of the modern self, couldn't we trace it back a lot further? Um, Descartes or Luther, or what about the mystics? What about Augustine? Uh, are, are there further um, sort of prequels to the Enlightenment sense of the modern self that you could have uh, had a look into?
2: Yes. I mean, it's, uh, it's an obvious question in some ways. Why, why did you begin where you began? And it's the question that I think any historian faces when they write on on any topic, because you know, history doesn't begin at a certain point in time. There's always a backstory to to whichever figure or whichever event or action you look at. So the choice of Rousseau was on one level relatively arbitrary, could certainly have begun with Descartes, could have begun with Luther, could have begun with late medieval nominalism, could have begun with the mystics. Uh, could go back to Paul and the the, the exploration of the inner self there uh, I had one person email me asking me why i didn 't start with Eve in the garden. Uh, surely that was where the problem began It was a yeah I, but the book needed to be less than a hundred thousand pages long <laughs> so it's it 's a fair question uh, I, I think Rousseau is an on one level you know, an arbitrary starting point on another level I think it's justifiable. Starting point on the grounds that Rousseau does have a huge amount of influence, for example, on modern educational theory. So we can see his specific fingerprints on certain aspects of the modern world in which we now live. But certainly, uh, one could one could go back further, and I I think as well, and I'm speaking from. To you from the United States, I would also say the narrative I tell in some ways is, is a bit of a Western European narrative. Uh, I've been asked, you know, why didn't you include uh, Thoreau? Why didn't you include the Transcendentalists? Uh, I, I think there are a lot of uh, players in the modern story and really for the sake of keeping things concise and coherent. I started with Rousseau and I I tried to trace a a, a line through him at the risk, of course, of of some degree of simplification. So one of the things we've
0: talked a bit about on this, in fact, quite a lot about on this podcast is the way that the you can account for the modern world as a series of sort of modifications of and exaggerations of and then gradually removals, the foundations of Christian thought that basically becomes so normalized in society, you know, the the weak shall be made strong. And that actually you can tell almost the account of some of what's happening in Rousseau, certainly a lot of what's happening in Marx, probably less of what's happening in Freud, but a lot of then what's happening in the 20th century and our current political divides through the lens of a sort of, universalization of Christian values that make I mean we were just, you know, talking about it in the previous episode about, you know, why we find fascism so much more reprehensible than communism is because communism would sort of appeal to a, a Jewish you know, even the Magnificat and, and that sort of thing. Whereas of course in fascism you don't. And I'm wondering to, to what, it, but of course, your account is is a more, if I can put it, this not a negative in a, in a but it's a more negative account, It's a more sort of anti Christian account of how we got to where we are with some of the political and moral and cultural divides we face. To what extent do you think that those two, if I can call them the Truman Doctrine and and the sort of the, and you know Tom Holland's take, or, or and many others, to be honest, Glenn and I have both been influenced by both. But to what extent do you think they're complementary accounts? To what extent do you think that there is actually a bit of a, that they are opposed in certain ways, that there are certain things you say, oh, no, I, I think we disagree about this. I actually think that's an attempt to try and sanitise or Christianize something that is more fundamentally in opposition to Christianity than that. Yeah. Or would you see them as basically being just two different ways of telling a story and that we need both?
2: I, I'm inclined to think we, we, we need both. And I, I think there are some interesting aspects of the modern world that are, I mean, one of the things I do in class when, when I teach Rousseau is I, I'm conscious that students might well think that I'm teaching you know, Rousseau as a bad guy. In some ways, in my narrative, he does appear as a, as a kind of villain. On the other hand, I, there are some things about Rousseau that I think are, are important contributions that Christians need to bear in mind. For example, uh, Rousseau makes great play of the fact that, that morality is, has to be connected to sentiments and emotions. And I make the point to the students, you know, if you look out the window and you see an old lady being beaten up by a gang of hooligans and you don't feel something, then we would say you're a psychopath and we would see you as morally deficient in some way. Secondly, I think what you get with Rousseau practically that you don't even finding the reformers is the notion of universal human dignity. I mean, the reformers, yes, they believed all human beings are made in the image of God, but they also knew that some human beings were just better than others. And, you know, Calvin does not want ordinary people running Geneva. It's the aristocracy who are supposed to do that. And I think when you when you look at Rousseau, you get these glimpses of the truth that have been perhaps theoretically acknowledged in the past. But have not really leavened the whole way of, of thinking. Now, so first of all, there's that side of it. And I think some of the, you know, some of the Enlightenment developments are actually Christian developments on that front. So what goes wrong? Maybe it's putting it rather simplistically, but, but I might put it this way and say we're now living in an era where uh, the Christian rhetoric of justice, love, mercy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, Uh, persists but the christian anthropology that gave that rhetoric solid stable content has has disappeared and that's where i think the real problem lies so yes love mercy and justice we all know these are good things but if you don't have an agreed anthropology underlying them then you really have no agreement on, on what they mean. And I think Alistair McIntyre gets at this in, 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 in his book After Virtue and some of his work After, where he points to, you know he talks in the language of you know, meta-narrative. We've lost our narrative, and therefore these ethical terms that persist no longer have any agreed content. Uh, I would say yes, and the narrative we've lost actually is, is the anthropological one. We've We've lost... Yeah, again to put it in a broader sense, we've lost Christian doctrine while retaining Christian moral language and I think that uh, creates a lot of the problems we now see that yes there is a sense in which modern society is parasitic on on the best of Christian language the tragedy is modern society no longer has the the Christian underpinnings in order to give that language a, a stable content.
1: That makes a lot of sense, therefore, of of why you began with Rousseau, I guess, um, because, I mean, th- there is that sense of the inventing of the individual, to use Larry Sidentop's kind of term about how we even got to a Russo being able to, to make the statements that he makes. And, and you've, you've got to have the inviolable dignity of individuals as individuals who you know, consent to be in the body politic and, and are equal before the eyes of the law. You, you need a whole lot of Christianity to get you to where Russo gets us or to where Russo was. But then I guess that, that kind of denial of original sin is, is just massive, isn't it? Um, what do, you, what do you think it would take these days to retrieve original sin? How do we make original sin great again? <laughs> yeah, well,
2: <laughs> it's, it's an interesting question. And, and, and I've been very, uh, as in a lot of things, I've been very influenced by Charles Taylor on, on, on many points. And one of the interesting observations Taylor makes about the modern world is you know, we, we make a mistake if we think the modern world is a straight fight between believers and unbelievers. Uh, Taylor says it's at least a three-way fight. You have... You know, believers, let's say Christians in our context, you have Christians, you have humanists, of which Stephen Pinker would be a great example. And then you have what Taylor, I think, accurately uh, dubs uh, Nietzschean anti-humanists, of of which Camille Paglia, one of my great heroes, would be, uh, uh, or is she a heroine? I don't know. She, uh, uh, but uh, Camille Paglia would be a, a good example. And when you think about that setup what's interesting is it depends what question you ask as to how the the sides line up if you ask about the existence of god then pinker and pallia are in one corner and truman's in another Uh, if you ask about does the universe have a moral structure uh, or can we talk about morality in in meaningful transcendent kind of terms then truman and pinker line up against pallia if you ask about are human beings fundamentally sound is it just a question of better education that will make us better or are we fundamentally dark and depraved then Truman and Pally line up against Pinker and so I, I'm wondering if actually in the, in the modern world we we do actually have points of contact on the issue of sin and darkness and depravity with which we can work uh, I find Freud for example Uh, much of Freud, quite compelling uh, in terms of how he understands human nature. Now, obviously, he and I disagree. You know, for him, that's nature. For me, it's fallen nature. But I do think there are points of contact with modern thought where evil is taken uh, very, very seriously indeed. Um, I don't know many people who don't believe in, in, in darkness and evil relative to human nature. We may disagree on exactly what its content is and its origins are, but I think in the world we live today, uh, arguments about evil have a a certain powerful plausibility to them. Mm-hmm.
1: So, in the in the Rousseau part of the book, you're sort of talking about the the self is psychologized. Um, what, what is good about that? I mean, you, you, you talk about with your students, you, you, you don't paint um, Rousseau as the man in the black hat um, because there's, there's something good about individuals not being lost in the shuffle of the collective, isn't there? Uh, what's, what's good about the self being psychologized?
2: Yeah, I, I think the, the, the rise of the self is a good thing on a number of fronts. I mean, one, as I've already mentioned, uh, we, we do have feelings. You know, <laughs> we are not automata. Uh, we have... Feelings, uh, a proper moral, ethical formation requires the correct attunement of those feelings. Uh, if I look out of the window and see that old lady being beaten up and it brings me intense pleasure, there's something wrong with me. Uh, so there's certainly that uh, dimension to it. Secondly, uh, and again, this perhaps is not so relevant to Rousseau, but it certainly tracks uh, to the Reformation. You know, one of the big th- I was at Notre Dame a couple of weeks ago and Patrick Deneen came to the lecture I was giving. And I like Patrick Deneen's stuff, but Patrick Deneen does tend to blame, uh, you know, everything seems to go wrong, strange to tell, about 500 years ago, (laughs) somewhere around about 1517. And uh, on one level, I I feel some of the pungency of Patrick Deneen's critique of modern liberalism, modern individualism. I do. Uh, On the other hand, I think that, The rise of individualism is is simultaneous with the rise of personal responsibility. And as a Christian, I cannot make sense of the New Testament unless there is a high degree of personal responsibility there. We are as individuals to repent and believe. Uh, We cannot have the priest or the church doing it for us. We have to do that stuff. Now, that brings with it a risk. It brings with it the risk of the kind of world we, we live in today. In the same way that I think freedom of religion is a good thing, but it inevitably shifts power towards the congregation and inevitably in the modern world has made religion more of a consumer product than it would have been in the Middle Ages. But I still think freedom of religion is a good thing. So my, my answer, uh, Glenn, I, would, would effectively be, yeah, th- These are good things that are developing in some ways with Rousseau in the 18th century. But as with so many good things, they bring risks, they bring problems uh, in in their wake. I happen to think that the rise of the individual allows uh, Christians to do more justice to more of the New Testament than the very a uh, strong corporatist hierarchical notion of the church that one has in the middle ages
0: so that raises to me quite an interesting question about um complicity on the part of the church and i mean i and not just digging into the medieval period because that would be you know we we've we've touched on that in previous episodes and also i know we'd probably it would be a bit like <laughs> shooting fish in a barrel the three of us but but perhaps in the more modern period so if you were to talk about the period I mean, a lot of your book is sort of, yeah, as I say, late 18th century to early 20th, and 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 then with the with the implications really in public life in the last 50 odd years. Where and in what ways do you see the church as complicit in? And by the church, I mean, you know, evangelical Christians and people adjacent to us, really. Um, whether it comes to issues of, uh, of sexual ethics, or of, of racial politics, and obviously racial history, of various of the cultural hot potatoes that we have now, It's obviously a bit like you, you know, I know you've you've had this with other people who've paint, you know, said to you, oh, of course the things start to go wrong at fifteen, seventeen. How do we avoid almost doing the same thing of that with oh, things start to go wrong in seventeen seventy five or whatever it is, uh, and and instead say actually, no, there is a, an account here in which the church is part of that process, and. So where would you see particular points at which the church is complicit in where we are, and other are things even that you think, yeah, we just still need to repent of that, or get our heads around the fact that that's what we did?
2: Yeah, there are there are, I mean, numerous points. You, you talk about shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, this could still be a shooting yes, fish. Yeah, that's in a true. Barrel, <laughs> in the and, and I'm also conscious that you know one of the things one has to be be wary of in this. It, it can be very easy to come across as a kind of I thank you Lord that I'm not like other men. So I don't want to preface everything I'm gonna say now with I regard myself as being implicated in the in the problem. Uh, hopefully, you, you know, we, we, what I say will help people see the problem more clearly, but I'm certainly not saying, you know, look at them over there, what a problem they've got. I
1: mean, a number of
2: ways I think uh, Christianity, and particularly Protestant evangelicalism, has, has connected with, with the, the problems that I've uh, been pointing out over the last few years. I mean, one, one obvious one I think is, is worship. Uh, the prevalence of the first-person singular in a lot of worship songs. Uh, well, the first-person singular really emerges as a force, I think, in Montaigne, uh, 16th century. That's where we start in literature to see the first-person singular coming through in a in a strong way. Now, you get it in the Bible, of course, but typically in the Bible, when, when the psalmist uses first-person singular, ultimately he brings himself under... Uh, the covenant God, that, that, that his identity is ultimately grounded, not in himself and his feelings, but in God's covenant dealings with Israel. Psalm 73 would be a good example. I felt really miserable about this, that and the other. Then I went to the sanctuary and, 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 and put all my personal feelings in the context of god's covenant dealings with israel even psalm 88 the most relentlessly depressing psalm of the whole psalter begins with the covenant name of god so all of the agonies are ultimately brought under god's greater dealings. so i think the the prominence we give to the first person uh, in our church life particularly in our worship would be problematic i think in terms of public issues Certainly, I would put no-fault divorce right up at the, at the top of church's complicity with the culture. I was just talking about this in class yesterday. Uh, it was the final class of the year. I know some of my students are going off to get married in the next uh, month or two. And I was commenting to them that if you, if you look at the traditional vows of marriage in the Book of Common Prayer and then put them side by side with the logic of no-fault divorce, you're not simply looking at two different versions of marriage. You're actually looking at two different anthropologies. It's two different understandings of what it means to be men and women, what it means to be human that underlie those. On the traditional vows, they arise out of a context of understanding human beings as being obliged and dependent. No man is an island. We are all connected. We have obligations and dependencies. And those are the things that define us throughout our lives. If you look at no-fault divorce, you have... Uh, that kind of radical, liberal, individual anthropology that a man like Patrick Deneen, I think so rightly, pinpoints and and rails against uh, in his writings. That's two different versions of what it means to be a human being. Now, think of how, you know, did the church take a stand on no-fault divorce? I I don't think so. Uh, Does the church typically discipline people for getting divorced, in my experience, not frequently. Uh, uh, Yes, we'll get very hot under the collar about gay marriage, uh, but the problem with gay marriage really rests upon the anthropology that lies behind no-fault divorce. So I would say we've been complicit morally uh, on the way that we have downgraded and and, and degraded uh, marriage. On that front, and then I think there's there's the more it's harder to pin down. But I think we're all subject to this. Uh, we tend to to take our membership vows in church very lightly. You know, oh, the minister does something we we dislike, and and we upsticks and go to another church down the road. But during my own time as a pastor, we had I think three discipline cases, uh, all of which for pretty serious issues, and in each each case. The individual who's excommunicated simply went off to another church and joined it or worships there. Uh, now, those are extreme cases, but I think many of us, and I include myself in this, feel that temptation to walk away as soon as our church isn't scratching the need that we feel. It takes a significant degree of, of self-discipline, I think, to resist that urge. So I would say in the whole area of church commitment, Again, it goes to that comment I made earlier about freedom of religion. Love freedom of religion, but it creates the marketplace of religion that means that we are vulnerable to, to treating the church as we might treat uh, a squash club or a golf club or something like that. It, it becomes the thing that we, 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 we join that connects with us and, yeah, you know, Traditionalists like me often point the finger at contemporary worship people and say, Oh, they're just going there because, you know, they like the contemporary songs. Well, you know, traditionalism's an aesthetic too. Uh there's a reason I go to a traditionalist church. I like the old hymns. Yeah. And I could make a theological case for them, but I'm conscious that when I do that, in part I'm justifying a position I hold for other reasons as well. So I, I think we're all at some level. Uh, corrupted might be too strong a word but perhaps tempted, tilted by this individualist, consumerist kind of culture in which we now find ourselves.
1: Which is very much enabled by technology, isn't it? And, and, and you've yeah. written very persuasively about how the invention of the motor car um, has absolutely changed the dynamics and perhaps more than the sort of a philosophy of freedom of religion has. And I, I wonder whether um, technology shocks uh, can play into the narrative here. When you, when you talk about um, the self has been psychologized and psychology has been sexualized, and, and certainly we, we feel the, um, the effects of that today, but somebody like a Mary Harrington will point to um, the impact of industrialization and, and the fact that, you know, the, the domestic realm and the work realm have been split apart by all sorts of just, you know, economic Factors, and there is the invention of the motor car and then you come through into the 1960s and there's this thing called contraception which absolutely you know splits sex from any of its um, consequences or or, or so the story goes anyway Um, so how are we going to fit together the the technological and the industrial and the economic the material causes from the the ideas that are filtering down yeah
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, my my book is, is in large part a sort of intellectual genealogy on that front. And the reason I did that was I think it's helpful to look at the intellectuals because they are the ones who reflect on what's happening and allow us to see very clearly the implications. But, of course, most people are not living the way they do or thinking the way they do because they've read Rousseau or Descartes or Wilhelm Reich or Sigmund Freud. It's the technology, it's the world in which we live that shapes how we think. And I think Mary's, uh, uh, I, I think her book, Feminism Against Progress, uh, is an amazing contribution. Uh, I, I, did a, I actually did a review of it for a feminist website. I, I thought of broke the glass ceiling, I think, in fairer <laughs> disputations as the guy who did a, a review. But I think Mary's book is, is fascinating and I think profoundly true. In, in a lot of its analysis. How do we break free of this? Well, I think there are two, two big problems here. First of all, there's what the, the German critical theorist Hartmann Rosa calls social acceleration. And that's the, the phenomenon of, well, when you think about the Reformation, one technological development, the printing press takes Europe 150 years really to assimilate the impact of the printing press how it reconfigures structures of power how it changes life for everybody Uh, I was teaching Pilgrim's Progress this week to students I was saying isn't it interesting in Pilgrim's Progress how all the gentlemen that uh, Bunyan refers to all the wealthy people they're all bad people And at the heart of Pilgrim's Progress, the scene of supreme kind of problem and evil is vanity fair, the commerce that's sort of tearing Bunyan's world apart. Uh, Well, all of that tracks back to the impact of the printing press in some way. Well, when you think the printing press creates 150 years of bloody conflict in Europe, what do you do in a world like ours where we are getting technological developments, I would say not every week, but certainly every six months or so? that potentially revolutionize everything you know suddenly you know i'm having to talk about chat gpt at work you know i'm a guy who uses his cell phone to well i keep it switched on silence, so it's a mobile voicemail and i order books from amazon and it that's what i do on my cell phone suddenly we got chat gpt uh, well that 's not going to be the last thing that hits the shore, and, and what Rosa points out is that when you live in a world of continual technological developments, you live in a world of continual disturbance that you can never settle, you can never grab hold of something that is solid in order to know who you are and how you relate to the wider world so and that 's a problem for us all we can 't simply step aside uh, from technology we are caught up in this flux at this point and the second point flowing from that is is that, you know in general terms you know, technology we, we we can't avoid it uh, I was sim- I'm sympathetic to Rod Dreher's notion of the Benedict Option um, formation of strong communities yes but we fool ourselves if we think we can form our strong communities in isolation from the technological developments that are taking place uh, when I was a pastor and, and Andrew I'm sure you have the same experience Andrew my my congregants have mortgages. I have a mortgage myself. They have student loans. They are inextricably tied into the the world in such a way that they cannot simply and straightforwardly withdraw from it to form a strong community. So we have unavoidable technology and we have terribly disturbing social consequences. I mean, disturbances caused by technology. How do we counteract that? I, I don't know that we can do it in the short term. Now, there are, I think, glimpses of light. Oddly, I think COVID uh, provided some some hope here in that I was struck when we had to go we went online for six weeks at Grove City College. Uh, and I remember speaking to one of my colleagues and saying, "We've got to pray that the students hate it. This could <laughs> be the moment the barbarians storm the gates kind of thing. And uh, the thing was the students hated it. I mean, ultimately, they don't pay their student fees. To be taught by me, they pay their student fees to be on a campus with other bodies. They pay to be in a classroom with other bodies. Uh, I think COVID has opened up potential conversations about the importance of actually being present with people. Having said that, one thing that disturbed me was it was not so much that churches went online, you know, it was chaos in the early days, nobody knew what was happening. It seemed to me a prudent thing to do to go online. The fact that so few people thought that they lost very much when we did that, that disturbed me. Yes, we got to do it, but let's feel it's painful. Let's feel it's horrible. Let's be working as hard as we can to get back to normal as soon as possible. The fact that that was not a strong impulse worried me. Uh, And again, going back to Mary Harrington, I think one of the things Mary Harrington really pinpoints in her book is the importance of the body. The importance of the authority of the body that's another way i suppose of telling the kind of narrative i've taught you know what is psychologizing psychologizing involves ultimately a downgrading of the body to some extent i think we need to try to teach and impress upon people uh, the importance of embodiment how do we do that i think as christians we do that through hospitality more than anything else hospitality i don't remember many classes at college I do remember being invited to professors' houses for dinner. Uh, the names I remember from churches in the past uh, when I was a young, a young person, they're the names of the people who opened their houses to me to give me hospitality when I was all on my own in a new city. I think hospitality, It's not an, we don't win this by an argument. We win back the importance of the body by demonstrating the importance of the body in various ways. And I think one of the most delightful is hospitality. It's one of the qualifications for eldership. And I think elders are merely to be aspirational paradigms for every Christian. So I think when Paul says that an elder should be given to hospitality, he's really saying everybody should aspire to be given to hospitality. And I think that's going to be very, very important. Mm -hmm. I've only got
0: i'd really like that i'd like to go further a bit on that i've got one more question i think you might want to then ask something and then wrap up but i would when you, i think you, it's interesting and challenging he's saying we don't you don't win this with an argument and i and i i obviously agree i think it, all the stuff you're saying about embodiment and hospitality particularly really resonates but when, within the context of being a Obviously, you've served as a pastor within the context of preaching, within the context of just sharing the gospel with people in the community, whether it's conversation, preaching, evangelism, that sort of thing. How have you seen or how have you used some of the stuff that you've researched and how does it come to the surface, if you like, in those sorts of conversations?
2: Right. Um, Yeah, it's a very good question, Andrew. I think in a couple of ways, I I think that I've been very gratified saddened in some ways but gratified by a lot of the correspondence i've had as a result of of the books from people whose families have been badly uh, damaged by the sexual revolution in one way or another but one of the notes that's come through consistently in the in the letters and emails i've received is that the narrative has helped them understand why their son daughter brother sister wife husband is thinking and acting the way they do i i think a big Shift. Maybe it's a generational shift, but for my generation, really, sex was all about behavior. And I think the realization that, that sex is, is much deeper than behavior, that for a rising generation, it's also about identity. I think that's pastorally useful because, you know, you can preach against the behavior. But what you've really got to do, I think, is address the question of anthropology what does it mean to be a human being? And I, and I think that has, two adva- that has two advantages to it. One, the obvious advantage is I think you're actually addressing the problem people are struggling with. But secondly, it also enables you to avoid the problem of always presenting a negative vision. Yeah, being, you know, you, you mustn't do this. You mustn't do that. You mustn't feel this way. Instead, what you're doing is saying, do you know, do you know what it really means to be a human being? It means X. And this is the positive vision. And by implication, Y and Z become problematic at that point, And we need to talk about Y and Z. But what we're really looking for here is somebody being truly fulfilled as a human being. Uh, and I would say, for example, you know, one, one thing that I've been focusing on with the students at Grove when I talk to them and I, and I make this a theme in my classes now is, is Friendship. Uh, you know, we, we live in a world where, hey, if you have strong feelings for somebody of the same sex, age 12 or 13, the only category you're given to understand that is same-sex attraction. You're gay. You're lesbian. I want to say no. When I was growing up, we had another category, the category of friendship that allowed you to articulate your passionate feelings about somebody else in a non-sexual way. And so I think that, that one of the things that I found that, that I've sort of em, found emerging out of my narrative is the need to, to realize that the issue is an anthropological one. And to start thinking about the great categories we can use that help us to capture something that the psychologized and sexualized narrative of, of humanity uh, has lost. I also think it's, you know, it, it press, it's pressed me to think as a Christian of well, we, we need to teach the whole counsel of God. The real temptation at this point is to focus on the symptoms. The real temptation is to focus on abortion, focus on uh, the sexual revolution, uh, focus on gender. Uh, I want to say no, a teaching strategy needs to be much broader based than that. Yeah, we have these pressing issues, but we can only truly approach them as Christians if we've actually set the full framework of the whole counsel of God up in the first place. So second thing in terms of preaching strategy, uh, I was thought I need to be trying to cover all of the basis, not in every sermon, but I need to be thinking strategically as I preach through the year about what are the things that I'm going to be touching on and the third thing i I guess as as my final point would be the temptation for real discouragement at the moment is is tremendous particularly in the united states i think the problem in the united states is that protestant evangelicals thought they owned the country and it's becoming patently obvious they don't own it anymore if they ever did and the temptation then is to think something's being stolen from you uh, that you're powerless in the face of this act of theft and to despair I think preaching, the preaching of hope, the preaching of the return of Christ, the preaching of the Lamb will triumph. I think these things have to feature as well pastorally in order to make sure that people are doing what Paul points to in Colossians. Not focusing so much on the things of this world, but focusing on the things of heaven.
1: Our podcast is called Post-Christianity, and uh, I wonder if you feel like post-Christian is um, an accurate description of our moment. If so, uh, how would you describe what post-Christian means, or do you have an alternative?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think in in a sense, yes. In terms of society's values, we do live in a post-Christian world. What, What might I, how might I sort of, articulate that. I I don't think that either America or Britain has ever been a Christian country in terms of every member of the population being Christian. I do think that for many centuries though both America and uh, Britain had I would say a broad moral imagination that overlapped with, comported with, was consistent with Christianity in terms of its public morality. I think we now live in a world where the moral imagination of the world uh, uh, of the societies we find ourselves in is increasingly antithetical to the Christian moral imagination in terms of its practical, ethical and moral implications. And, and to that extent, I think, yeah, post-Christian, uh, Uh, And I think that's what's going to create the tensions in our current moment and going forward. And the way I put it uh, to students at Grove is this, the the terms of membership in society and the terms of membership in the church are increasingly antithetical to each other in a way that perhaps in the West they haven't been for maybe since Constantine. You know, we could go back a long way on on that front in, in the broad West. And I think that's going to create some interesting challenges for us, uh, because the, the old liberal model, and again, I, I don't want to sound too post-liberal. And I love Patrick Deneen, love his stuff, but I'm not with him in, in, in many places. But I do think the old model where religion could be safely kept in the private square is disappearing, because that model only worked when the public square Uh, The morality of the public square and the morality of religion basically overlapped. Uh, Do you believe in the resurrection? Yes. Well, that doesn't matter. You can still be a decent member of society in 1776. Uh, Do you believe that gay marriage is legitimate? Well, that's not an opinion you can hold privately these days. That has immediate public implications. And that's where I think the the post-Christianity aspect uh, is is pinching at this point.
1: Right, and at, and at that stage the, the difference between Christian and, and world uh, becomes uh, ever more obvious and there are huge threats and perhaps some opportunities too, but we can uh, process those over the course of the podcast. Uh, Carl, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. The, the name of your two books are? Uh, Well, it keeps being referred to as the rise and
2: fall of the modern self. Would that it had fallen. It's the rise and triumph of the modern self. They're confusing you with Reggie uh, Perrin,
0: I think. I don't know if that joke will (laughs)
2: try. Al has interviewed me twice, and he keeps calling it the rise and fall of the modern self, and I'm too scared of him to correct him. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, post-Christianity, that does lead to post-humanism, so there's a kind of... Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And Strange New World, which is the... uh, the abbreviated version that that you could read when you you're on the tube heading into London on a on a morning. Yes, yes,
1: and and people can catch up with your work at First Things and elsewhere online as well. But um, yeah, yeah, wonderful, Carl Truman. Thank you so so thank much you for joining so much, us. God. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant.
2: Thanks. Great to see you guys again.
1: Gosh, what did you make of that?
0: Yeah, it was obviously as fascinating as ever. I think you are always, it, Carl's interesting on pretty much anything you hear him on. I think there were a number of things that um, that struck me. I think I was interested in the thing about complicity. I think I was kind of there, I was in, interested in in how he would approach that question because I think one of the things I've, I've thought about is even when thinking through, and I specifically asked about the sort of sexual and racial politics of our moment, that the way in which the church has been complicit in some of those divides, say, you know, racial injustice being a very obvious example, but to be honest, it's true in sexually as well. Um, and and I think, obviously, I'm not saying he's denying that, but of, that wasn't the way he took the question and went, so I thought that was that was interesting, just to reflect on a little bit. I think the most interesting thing that he, that I hadn't really thought about before, was the sort of, when he framed the triangle, where he's got Truman yeah. and Pallia and Pinker, right. and of course, I thought you could do exactly the same thing I was thinking in the 18th century, I wish I'd thought of that, because actually that's just what you would get if you were to get John Newton and Rousseau or Voltaire and then the Marquis de Sade and and Uh, have a dialogue, you know, uh, not in, actually... Pallier is quite a fan of Machi decide in various ways, but we're not trying to attribute everything of him to her, mm. but thinking that is actually that, that way of, oh, oh, when we talk about the darkness of humanity, these two agree against this one. When we talk about is there a God, these two agree against that one. It was That was a really interesting way of framing it. So yes. that was the... Probably the thing he said, because I've read I read a lot of his and, and we've talked before, but I, I found that i would not heard him say that and found that a very interesting way of thinking. And then I guess, yeah, the the fact that without really being asked, he, he lent into embodiment as the key mm. apologetic response. I mean, he, he did, wasn't using that language, but if you said, what do you do about this? Right. Before we even asked him, he was really leaning right. into, you know, friendship, bodies, church. homes, friendship, hospitality, yeah. church. And I thought much that I would probably expect him to... Say that and believe it. I, I thought that was a really interesting answer, and that effectively, the the arguments and the more cerebral side, which we do still need to engage with, hence much mm-hmm. of what we're doing in this podcast, mm-hmm. and, and much of what I'm sure we will talk about later with Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, I and I think, but I think what where Carl was going early on, yeah. I imagine she will agree with this as well, is that it's got to it's got to work in homes and around meal tables and in churches. And I thought that was a great response. What about you? What yeah. did you
1: pick up? Oh, lots of great stuff. I mean. Uh, hearing how Rousseau's anthropology was sort of divergent from the christian story yes. as that's the new thing and that's why he's interesting as a starting point i yeah. thought yeah that that suddenly made sense in terms of because in in terms of all the positives of rousseau and he was he was absolutely clear that there are um, many positives to having a sense of the individual and a sense of your feelings and mm-hmm. and and all that kind of stuff is is great but yeah what's interesting is now what's different with rousseau and the denial of original sin and and that that sense of anthropology that that made a lot of sense. Sense, and bringing in the uh, issues of the material, the um, technology, industrialization, and that that is absolutely part of the story, um, even if it's not a prominent part of the book, it's absolutely mm. a part of the story. But then I loved the way he was saying that um, helping people understand the being nature of your sexuality rather than the behavior nature mm. of your sexuality and giving people a map of on which they can say, yes. ah, you are here, and this is why it feels the way that it feels. And I, I just think that's so important when I think traditionally Christians uh, are thinking, well, this is the Bible, and everything that is not biblical is is simply uh, a, a kind of a fall from biblical teaching, mm. whereas what he's saying is, no, he, here is an alternative cosmos, yeah. right? Uh, and you can find yourself on the map in this alternative cosmos that actually doesn't have a. It's it's not just not biblical. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not just fallen from a Christian vision. It it has a different center of gravity and it orbits around different kind of you know vital values. Um, and when you inhabit that universe, you start to f- you start to understand why it feels the way it feels. Yes. To be in a sexualized culture that, yes. that we're in, and and so that that's the great value of the genealogy of ideas, I guess. Yes, it is.
0: I, I wish I'd asked him. <laughs> that, you know, he's, get, he's him back, get him back, get him back. Yeah, <laughs> but um, because one of the, as you know, like so in the chapter I do on Romanticism in in the, in my 1776 book, I, I do I have I have four a stop in four cities basically. Or, towns and look at Weimar and, and look at the, the, the Sturm und Trang and then look at Rousseau and talk about the sexual revolution in London taking place. But I also I start in Venice with Giacomo Casanova. Mm um and i realized and i wish i'd asked him about this because i think he is the first person really to narrate the story of his life with his sexuality as the primary point of interest mm-hmm. i don't think mm-hmm. i mean clearly other people had talked about augustine did um mm-hmm. other people have talked about sexual challenges with but it's very very minor really as a subset of a much large even though we quoted a lot mm-hmm. it's a very mm-hmm. small part of a book that's primarily about other things Whereas when you read Casanova, and, and you do get this, Russo talks a lot, of course, about his sexual struggles. But I feel like Casanova is probably the first person to say the main thing that's interesting about me mm. is my sexual escapades and sexuality and reflection on them. And then now, as you say in that, when it comes to the "you are here," mm. now going, wow, two hundred and fifty years on. That far from, that was almost unique. Like no one had almost ever done that before. Right. Maybe, I mean, you could argue whether it's Casanova, Russo or someone else come first. But whereas now you come forward and you think that is, it's almost assumed that the most interesting thing you could say about somebody would be their sexuality. And if you watch a movie of, about someone that didn't explore their sexual side at all, mm-hmm. you would think, well, that's just, It would feel, even to a Christian probably, and certainly to most people who aren't, would feel like a very strange omission. You'd think something's missing. Why didn't they get into his marriage? Or why didn't her struggles with this relationship she had in the past come into the story? You'd think it was odd. And it's just realised that, again, as a sort of putting people on the map, saying, yeah, this is not... I'm mm. not even necessi- uh, wholeheartedly condemning that fact I'm simply making you aware of it So that you can know this is why you find it hard to think about identity Without reference
1: to sexuality So that's the, that's the R in your weirder Or well, it's yeah. the second R in your weirder So Western, educated, industrialised, rich, democratic Is the Joseph Henrich thing um, You've added E and R E is ex-Christian in yeah. your book And R is romantic, romantic. Yeah. Um, So just give, it, give us a sense of who the romantics are Well so I I,
0: probably the way of the way I would introduce it I I mentioned those four places four cities I I visit in the the chapter on it because I'm starting in 1776 Um, but really the that's the sort of the beginnings of the the beginnings of the stirrings I think romanticism in its full-blown sense really kicks in in the 1790s and it's it's very it's incredibly hard to describe you know Isaiah Berlin writes 800 words on it and goes I'm not gonna I'm still not going to tell you exactly uh, to define it, but I'm still not going to tell you what I think it is. That just, to, And so I think, well, this is foolhardy to try and do it myself. But there is a combination of different emphases that are often not just expressed philosophically, but particularly artistically, musically, mm, in the right. visual arts and in poetry uh, and literature. Things like, um, I use a lot of alliteration for it, but inwardness mm. and interiority, a sense of... Uh, Innocence, uh, a a very high, you know, something like William Blake, very high, almost a fetishization of childhood and innocence, Um, a sense of uh, ineffability and infinity, which I think the idea that you just can't, the greatest things in life can't be owned or held or described. They need to be sort of conjured up. Imagination. Mm. The idea that what we're really trying to do is to sort of dream and pull that things from within us and that art is basically the overflow of powerful feelings is that, mm-hmm. that sort of idea that there's a sort of intensity of emotion and feeling which ought to be expressed. Mm. And it's really a, a reaction. There's many other things we could say about it, but it's basically a reaction to the fear that... It's interesting now you think of the French as being the very romantic and experimental but at the time it was actually the Germans really saying of the French in in the early years the French have sort of and the enlightenment are dividing everything up categorizing right. everything here's these encyclopedias yep. and the sort of structures and actually it's it's they're just destroying that which makes life passionate and powerful i suppose a modern you know it's um robin williams's character in dead poets society is a sort right. of, is a um, not contemporary, you know, but a contemporary ish movie that's trying to go, that's what a romantic is. It's someone who's saying you can't boil everything down and tidy everything up. Right. But describing it is very difficult. And that's part of the point. But obviously, it's been massively influential in the way we understand the relationship between the self and the, the, the inner person mm. and where truth is found. Yeah. So obviously, Carl goes into this in his book, and, and I do in mine, that the idea that really what comes within needs to be brought out mm. rather than you need to align yourself to the constraints provided by the world, the romantic instinct is, impulse is more of a no, I'm going to come up, bubble up from within and I'm going to take on that world and I'm going to, you know, wrestle with it and of course on many of them, I'm going to valorized suicide or another way of escaping. It. I'm going to do something completely out there and just leave the world and go and become an oddball Which right. is what Russo does or I'm going to write about suicide or perhaps even kill myself Would be one way of saying oh, it's me against the world and the world might not like it in which case catastrophic consequences may follow and it was almost quite a uh, Yeah, a sort of a, an up a holding up of that as an ideal yes. So it's a very strange movement, but it has you just see it everywhere in right. in i mean the the disney story ultimately is i've got to find out who i am in here yep. and then project that out into the world and break than, free from yeah because the, the and that is a very Rousseauist idea that the, the mm-hmm. that the world is providing society is corrupt and it's shackling me and yep. the true me needs to break out and, yeah, and rip yeah. and uh, and that is pretty much the plot of most novels and movies.
1: Yes, and it resonates so um, strongly with the human heart nowadays that of course my identity is found by looking in here, yeah. rather than to looking around at yeah. culture and family um, or looking up to, yeah. to what God or the gods might say and it, it, it's second nature to us now. Yeah, so.
0: you do you, be who you are you just yeah. got to look at, you know, follow your heart all those sorts of things which are trite but they do reflect yeah. the way um not just our generation but have for multiple generations think about what is good and what self-actualization is and where happiness is found and it's very foundational to who we are Um, and I just think we need to track that so I want to tell that story as well as telling the post-Christian story that we've been exploring in more detail because I think the two run in parallel tracks and and the fusion between them is catalyzed by the technological and the sort of material developments we talked about as well. So they're all happening together, yes. which makes it very difficult to separate out just the romantic ideals and say, oh, we'll deal with those on their own. So no, 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 that's, that's bled into the way we understand Christianity, which has bled into the what those values are in the first place. And they've both been bound right. up together with
1: right. inventions and maps yeah. and stuff. And one interesting interplay of the two, um, on, on our podcast here at Speak Life, uh, we once played a game and it was, c- can you guess whether this is a coming out story or a Christian testimony? Oh really? <laughs> and so we, we we went online, and, and Thomas was, <laughs> was here. So it would just take a, a couple of sentences from somebody's testimony, and like he would read out the sentences from a Christian testimony, and, and myself and Nate Morgan like would have to think, is is that a coming out story about you know yeah. I, I used to be repressed and I used to be like this yeah. and I used to be in the darkness and and now I'm coming into the light. Um, it was an impossible game to play we we we, i can quite believe it we got it as wrong as we did right and and romanticism and the church um yeah it's it's a two-way street
0: can we come back to that in another
1: episode because i want to
0: talk about john newton
1: and Mm. and hymns
0: and the response of the church and how yes. much of what you've just described is a good thing and how much of it is a bad thing and yes how much of it is contextual and how much is just is capitulating and I, th- I would really like to talk a bit about that
1: I love Probably a cliffhanger I love a cliffhanger so if you want more <laughs> if you want John Newton and uh, the both the the opportunities and the threats of, of that sort of inward turn and um, come back for more of post-christianity um, so please do uh, give us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice please do share us around on social media media sharing is caring and do come back as we talk more about just your inane catchphrases. <laughs> they just come out I don't know if you prick me I bleed inanity that's that's me but that'll do us for now uh, you come for the Truman you stay for the inanity <laughs> we will uh, see you next time on post Christianity bye bye